Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome to episode 130 of Killer Hangover. This is my favorite because it's bizarreties. <laughs> I'm Bettina. I'm Beth. And we're both so excited about sharing this. <laughs> Neither one of us knows what the other's going to talk about. So um, I think we're like both just squirming to share our stories. <laughs> like, I've been wanting to cover this story forever. And I finally sat my butt down and just did it. Did it. Yeah. Well, mine came from a friend, Terry, who's a listener, and she uh, sent a video to me and I watched it and I was like, so doing this, so <laughs> doing this. And then I researched some more into it. So it was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. Hey, speaking of listeners giving us story ideas, did you see that email we just got in? Is this for real? This is for <laughs> <laughs> Yes, mom, this is for real. <laughs> no, I didn't. Yeah, we just got an email from Taylor and she shared a true crime that she's like been affected by, her family's been affected by. She knows the family, the victims and everything. And it's like an unsolved open, well, it's not quite unsolved, but it's an open case. Ooh. The FBI just reopened it. I'm oh. like super jazzed to hop into it and share this because it's one of those stories that I think needs to be shared to be put out so right. just a shout out to taylor thank you so much for sending that to us i am starting to dig and get as much as i can but if other listeners have other stories that they want us to share please please send them our way yeah yeah like beth she's starting to research that one already yeah and we just got the email like we did so. i mean i started that <laughs> night i opened the email i read it and i started searching <laughs> Wow, look at you. Yeah. Oh, I've been on a little vacay, so. I know. She, <laughs> just she's getting... back. <laughs> We're recording together, actually, but she's still on vacation mode. <laughs> vacay, totally. Um, no, I'm not on mode anymore. <laughs> like, I had so much to do coming home. Doesn't that suck? You need like a vacation from your vacation. I need vacation from taking down my Christmas, with which I just did. <laughs> it's fake. <laughs> It's January 27th. Where have I been? Okay. I actually, I can't talk. I still have a Christmas tree up too. I mean, all my decorations are down, but the tree is still up. But the, the lights are just so pretty at night. I know, but I keep some of my lights Garland up. and stuff. Some of my garland. It's still winter. Yeah. I still have some winter garland up. I do that I like all the twinkle time. Lights. I, I love twinkle lights. I love twinkle lights. I think that's why I like fake candles so much. The ones that come on timer and mm -hmm. sit up on the mantle and just they're just feeling. always there to greet you in the evening <laughs> every evening at five o'clock as long as you replace the batteries <laughs> this is not an ad <laughs> okay so we're almost said we're drinking together unfortunately we're still not drinking together she's smelling my drink 
I mean, we are drinking together. I am drinking coffee, which is a portion of your cocktail. Yes, I can taste that. I found, I just went on the Google and I searched bizarre cocktails. Oh, how fitting. Yes, this is on Forbes. There was like a bunch of them. But this one I thought was very you because we are recording in the morning. Well, (laughs) you are still drinking gin, (laughs) but it has coffee in it. (laughs) You're not going anywhere. We're just... (laughs) No, not going anywhere. (laughs) It's a podcast day. So mom's starting her day with gin. So I found this. I made this and mom's drinking it. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. It's a Hendrix coconut cocktail. Hendrix probably because it calls for Hendrix gin. Yeah. I did not have Hendrix gin. I apologize. We have to rename it. (laughs) Sapphire. It's a sapphire coconut cocktail. (laughs) So I it's uh, mm, mm, what is it? Okay. It's one and a half parts gin, three parts coconut water, one part cold brew coffee. (gasps) Cold brew coffee. Yes. That's that stuff affects me. So, you know, if all of a sudden I'm talking really, really fast and I'm <laughs> let me tell you my story right now. That's why I love cold brew. There's this place near Science City here at Union Station in Kansas City. So when you go, obviously, I need caffeine for chasing kids around Science City. They have the strongest, bestest cold brew coffee you've ever had. And it keeps me going through science city and i'm so thankful for that coffee place right outside there man i don't know how you can do it i was with my sister several years ago and i thought oh i've never had a cold brew i'll just order a cold brew and i started drinking it and all of a sudden my heart just started pumping i'm like what's with this coffee and chris goes well that's cold brew it's really caffeinated (laughs) i'm like no kidding Oh, I love it. I haven't had it since <laughs> until today. <laughs> um, my there. Sorry, this is just a side coffee story. But I was at Starbucks waiting for my coffee the other day, and the lady was standing next to me, and she had two kids with her, and, she, and we were just talking about her kids. They were cute. They're kind of hanging all over, or whatever. And I was there without kids. It was very nice. <laughs> um, but. She, I said, yeah, I'm about to calf up. You know, I have a lot to do today. And she kind of looked me up and down because I'm obviously <laughs> very pregnant. And she, she made a comment about like, oh, I didn't drink caffeine when I was pregnant or like I stayed away from the stuff when I was pregnant. Uh-huh. And I just kind of looked at her and I said, my doctor actually told me I needed to drink caffeine because I'm an addict. <laughs> <laughs> she was stunned and I just walked away. But... <laughs> First of all, very rude, and I kind of felt like I had to put her in her place. But my doctor did tell me I had to because I was started to cut out like one. I have like three or four cups a day. I know that's horrible, but I limited it down to like one, maybe one and a half. And I started getting horrible migraines. My doctors told me I could have three cups. She's like, go back to your three cups, go back to your espresso. Try not to drink, obviously, as much, but you're an addict. You can't cut it out. (laughs) you'll really be suffering just make sure you're drinking a lot of water on top of it which wow i do don't tell people what they can and can't do in a pregnant or not passive aggressive way well that's the rudest well i would never yeah she said something along the lines of just like well when i was pregnant i i really made an effort to cut it out and i'm just like good for you i'll take my triple please (laughs) 
Like that quadruple. <laughs> I'm chasing three kids around at home. This is my fourth and she's looking good, feeling good. Everything's fine. So yeah, I'm going to enjoy my freaking latte. Okay. <laughs> it's the only thing I can It's have. with soy milk at least. Like, <laughs> Well, this drink is pretty good. Um, oh yeah, you're drinking this. Sorry. <laughs> back to me. <laughs> It, I can taste the coconut. Not a lot. Yeah. I think you would even like this. Really? Bethy doesn't like coconut. I'm not so a fan. I'm a huge fan. Um, Yeah, I can slightly taste it, but not overpowering. Can't really taste the gin. And, well, then you have the coffee. To me, the coffee is the most prominent taste. Okay. Well, it also says that you can put chocolate bitters. I didn't have that. I'm sorry. Maybe once this baby comes, I'm really just going to go and stock up the bar. <laughs> With like different kinds of bitters and all that kind of stuff. So you add all the ingredients to a shaker and shake hard with ice. Not soft. Hard. <laughs> Fine strain into a chilled glass. Garnish with grated nutmeg and mint. I did put nutmeg on yours. Oh, that's what I'm tasting. Okay. I'm not a real fan of nutmeg. Sorry. I put just a little just to make yeah. it look pretty. Yeah. It did. doesn't anymore, but it did. Okay. Well, that is the cocktail. Again, it's just bizarre cocktails. There's a list of them there. So it has nothing to do with my story. I don't know if it has anything to do with yours. Not really. But it's <laughs> bizarre, I guess. Okay. All right. All right. We're excited right, to share. Right, right. Mom, you're going first. I am going first. I'm going to sit back with my my second cup of coffee of the day, and I'm going to um, anxiously listen here. Okay, I have to preface this by saying I'm going to try my hardest to say these names correctly. Oh, but, mom, just wait till I get to my story. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> well, you know, I want to be. They know we're trying. They know we're kind not trying to be kind to the victims by at least getting their names right. So, okay. October 5th, 2017. 61-year-old. Tataki Gakwotze underwent a abdominal surgery. The surgery went well, but of course he had to stay in the hospital to recoup. And he stayed in a room in Stellenbosch Hospital in Stellenbosch, South Africa. Okay, I was going to ask where this was taking place. Okay, gotcha. Got it? Got it. Okay. Tatake was described as a really nice man. I mean, just... Not only in the hospital, but he was just family, friends. Everybody loved this guy. He always has had a smile. He had a joke. He was just a very congenial person. Love it. And that didn't change. After his surgery, he was joking with the nurse, you know, when he came out of <laughs> the anesthesia. But he was joking. <laughs> During with... surgery, he's telling jokes. <laughs> That's something. <laughs> um, but he was joking with the nurses, had a smile on his face. I mean... You know, he was just a really nice guy. Okay, now keep in mind, mm -hmm. this is important. Keep in mind, the man had surgery and he had very deep surgical cuts, meaning he had stitches, he had whatever else. So he had no core. He couldn't walk. He was across his abdomen? Yes. Okay. Okay, so keep in mind, he, this poor guy, it, it, intensive surgery, okay. can't walk. Like a C-section. <laughs> Almost. I, I'm not sure what the surgery was for. Okay. Okay. So 
this is like the morning after the surgery. The nurse and, you know, they come every two hours or something to check on you. Yeah, anyway. you can never rest in hospitals. <laughs> it's it's around 5 a.m. or so. And she walks in and Tatake was awake and smiling and talking to her. And she is, so she took his vitals and then she went, she had a linen cart out in the hall, just outside the room. Right. out In the hall, right outside the room. She went to get some towels or something. When she came back into the room, so literally she took one step out of the room, got the linens, turned around, came back in the room. Tatake was gone. Gone? Gone. Disappeared. Disappeared. Vanished out of his room. So she thought, well, maybe he went to the restroom, which would have been really hard for him to do. But maybe he really had to go. I don't know. I'm sure he was connected to IVs and stuff, too. Sure. So she's knocking on the door. Is everything okay? And there's no reply. So finally, she said, okay, I'm going to open the door uh, and make sure everything is okay. So she opened the door. He went there. And she's like, this is weird. Looked under the bed, looked, you know, behind the curtains. I don't know. Looked everywhere that you could possibly look. Tatake was gone. Weird. She, of course, notifies the hospital. And they decide to keep this under wraps. For two days, (sighs) they search the hospital secretly. Right? Family doesn't know. Nobody knows. Was nobody coming to visit him? Um, I guess they didn't right then. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe they lived at quite a distance and sure. couldn't make it. And so anyway, whatever the reasons, but they didn't come during that time. So they had all personnel looking for Tatake. Whenever they were off, they were looking. Couldn't find him. So finally on the second day, <laughs> this just totally gets me. Hospital staff calls Tatake's family and asks, hey, is Tatake home with you? Are you serious? And they're like, no, he's in the hospital with you. I said, no, well, he left two days ago. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine that what that family's going through? So the family came to the hospital and searched the grounds also, searched the grounds, searched the hospital. Nothing. But it's been two days. They went back home intending to search the next day, but they called the police. Yeah. So then the next day... They went to search, but also brought the police with them. Tatake was gone, vanished, until October 20th, so 14 days later. Oh, my gosh. Workers were doing renovation at the hospital. They had to go into the ceiling to do some electrical work or something. Now, the ceiling is, think of an attic. It's kind of thin, but it runs the entire length of the floor of the hospital. Okay. Okay. They were at one end and the guy's kind of shining his light around and he sees something in the corner at the far end of the corner. They get up to investigate and it's Tatake's dead body. In the ceiling? In the ceiling. How in the world did he get there? There's no way that he could have hoisted himself into that ceiling. No way. The hospital performed an autopsy. And especially in that quick short of time yeah, think about that like i can see like him being a jokester and like trying to play a joke on the nurse but maybe not right after surgery one and two it probably took her less than a minute to go and grab not something even. and come back in not even yeah the hospital performed an autopsy and the results were only told to the family not much is known about what the family was told only that one the death was not from the surgery. Of course, well, they of would Of course, they don't that. want to be liable. Tatake was dead before he was put in the ceiling. 
The hospital did not know what caused Tatake's death and was waiting for more autopsy reports. No other information has ever come out. What? Now let's talk about what may have happened to Tatake. The mundane is murder, right? I mean, right. that's, but think about that. But, but, but still, again, how? 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 The nurse was, let's, let's give her a minute <laughs> to get the linens, which were right outside the door. Tatake didn't pass her and there was nothing in the room that, that showed a struggle. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, murder was a little, is a little hard to conceive. Delusional. Did he put himself in the ceiling? Again, the nurse was right there and he had no strength. That would have been such a struggle to put yourself in a ceiling. I mean, you know, I don't have Delusional surgery and not. I can't do it. So. She would have heard something too. Of course she would have. There was no sound. Was there proof that he was there the whole time? What do you mean? Was he in the ceiling the entire oh. 14 days? I, they didn't say, but I'm assuming yes. Okay. Then there is a question as to whether this is a case of teleportation. Oh my gosh. But that would answer a lot of questions. Think about it. If there was such a thing as being able to transport a body, it would answer how he disappeared and appeared in another place. Sure. If there was such a thing. If there was such a thing. This boggles the mind. Let me boggle it a little bit more. (laughs) (laughs) On May 10th, 2019... 53-year-old Sandele Sabia broke his right femur while working on a construction site. So his femur is the big bone between your hip and your knee. Right. Okay. It was a bad break. It was, I saw the x-rays and it was a total, like it was a total break. Yuck. Okay. No way could he walk. He was rushed to Durban's, Durban's Madahama Gandhi Memorial Hospital where he was immediately brought into surgery. He was in the hospital for two days, recovering well. Oh, that had to have hurt. But because of the break, he couldn't walk, obviously. On the second day, it was decided he was going to be moved to another hospital for recovery, and this hospital had an orthopedic doctor, which obviously he needed. Okay, so he told this brother this. He was on a conversation with his brother, said, hey, they're moving me to this other hospital. So when you come visit, visit me there. When they came to pick him up to be transported to this hospital, he was not there. He was not in his room. A search proceeded right away. Oh, right away. See? And police were called right away. So this hospital that he was at, the Madahama Gandhi Memorial Hospital, has really tight security. Okay. They were on it right away, this missing person. Incredible stench filled one wing of the hospital. Mm. They couldn't find the source. On May 24th, the smell was tracked to a small storeroom. In one corner, black liquid was seen seeping from the ceiling. Further search found Sandela's body stuffed and decomposing in a corner of the ceiling right above the storeroom. Again. How did he get there? He couldn't walk. Heck, he couldn't even stand on that broken leg. Initial news reports claimed that Sandile was a mental health patient, but that was not true. An autopsy was conducted by the Forensic Pathology Services, 
and the results were released to the family, but they didn't say anything to the public, and the family didn't say anything to the public as to the results. So two mysterious cases, two years apart, 2017 and 2019, in two different South African hospitals. Both men were recovering from surgery and couldn't walk by themselves, yet both vanished from their hotel, hotel, (laughs) their hospital rooms with no sign of struggle, no sign of anything. Well, I guess like you'd have a catheter, especially if you're, you can't move and you'd be hooked up to IVs, IVs and it just doesn't make any sense. Yep. They could not have gotten into the ceiling space themselves. No evidence or time for them to have been murdered and stuffed into the ceiling. Could this be two cases of spontaneous teleportation? Oh, boy. I know. I'm going into the woo land. But let me describe that unless you know. Do you know what it is? What? Teleportation? Well, spontaneous teleportation. Spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Does that mean at any moment you could just poof, disappear? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> So media Just a few times I wish that spontaneity <laughs> would happen to right, me. Now take now, me now. now. <laughs> Medium.com describes spontaneous teleportation as a physical body suddenly disappearing from a location and instantly reappearing at another location. This is not initiated by an individual, so you can't say, zap me up now, Scotty. <laughs> um, it is thought to be unexpected and unwanted. Could this really happen? Well, I'm sorry, but there would be more than just two cases within two years if this is a real thing, right? If it could happen, you're absolutely right. Could have happened more times than just the two I spoke about. But maybe some hospitals aren't releasing that information. Why? It doesn't necessarily have to happen in a hospital, right? No, these two cases did. But think of all the people that simply vanished. and, And we say, well, they just vanished into thin air. Maybe that's exactly where they went. I was just listening to a podcast, um, <laughs> Astonishing Legends. Yeah. And they talked about people hiking and stuff in the woods. And this is a two-part, so it's pretty long. Oh, they go in-depth in their subjects. I love them. They These people just vanished, disappeared, boom, gone. And never found again? Nope. There's some oddities that they're, like I, I just started listening to, there's some oddities like their boots were never found and they're all they they were lower and their their bodies are all found higher like on a higher oh. ground. Oh. Look at that. That's just crazy though. I know. And they don't And these two people just were noticed because they were in a hospital. Correct. But how maybe we don't know. I mean, I know I'm the skeptic, but still it's like uh, I mean, you could be a skeptic, but you can still question this because that's just, it's just, just craziness. It's bizarreities is what it is, mom. Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that's short, but I thought it was so interesting. And I know yours is long, so it works out. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes, yes, mine is long. And I apologize. God, am I so excited to share this with you. (laughs) Don't apologize for being long. Okay, so sit back, relax, enjoy that cocktail. Start zinging over there. Start getting that brain thinking. Okay. Have I got a story for you. The year was 1959. 
and according to a Soviet criminal investigation, a, quote, compelling natural force, unquote, led to the death of nine hikers in the Ural Mountains. The group had become known as the Dietlov Group, and the nature of this, quote, compelling natural force, unquote, the cause of the tragedy has never been identified. The deaths of these experienced hikers is an absolute mystery. Hypothermia being determined as the number one cause of some of their deaths, the mystery only grows with questions of why did these experienced hikers leave their tent in horrible weather conditions without any shoes? Why did some of them have radioactivity found on them? Is that photo of a Yeti real? (laughs) The injuries found on the dead were cause for questions as well. Rib cages being crushed, skull fractures. Two of the victims were discovered without their eyes and one without a tongue. What happened to these nine lives on that fateful hike? I'd love to say we're going to sit here and find out, but But I don't know that we can. (laughs) According to the Russian prosecution general, there are at least 70 five different theories to this case oh geez but that's it they're all theories and all theories that still leave you with a few doubts and lots and lots of questions oh okay dun 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 okay now, i have seen pictures of the bodies yeah it this is a pretty i want to say famous case I, I i hate to say it that way i would attribute this to like the United States, we have the JFK assassination. We have all these conspiracies, the government's, you know, closed down the case files and all this kind of stuff. This is their JFK assassination. Okay. Okay. Kind of think about it in that aspect. So it is a known case, but there's a lot of just rumor that started in speculation. So that's well, why there's a lot is, that goes into it. There's yeah. a lot that goes into it. So that is why I had to make this longer. It's definitely not something you can just kind of like, hey, did you hear about those nine hikers? Did you see the pictures? <laughs> okay, moving on. Uh, there's a lot to cover. So let's start out, though, by introducing the victims in this case. That's always a big thing for mom and I. And that's also something that's just kind of glazed over. Of course. There is an awesome website out there. I highly recommend it if you guys are interested. It's the dotlovepass.com. They have everything from biographies to autopsies to photos to maps to every single theory to, I mean, literally everything. It's all about that case. It's all about that case. So I got most of my information from there. I used several other resources but that was kind of my go-to to to double check things because Mm -hmm. they have the journals they have the photos they have things that i can double check and actually fact like i read the actual uh, well okay i didn't read the actual autopsy because they're in in russian Russian. (laughs) but they translated it and i read it they did the work i just read it (laughs) again though this is not just nine hikers these are nine human beings right so i'm going to take the time to introduce them to you guys I'm going to introduce you the original nine. It's going to get a little confusing. There was nine friends. One of them bowed out in the middle of the expedition because of health concerns. But before he bowed out, they did pick up somebody. So there was 10. And then one of them 
one of the fr- original nine friends bowed out. So then there was nine hikers. Got it. Okay. So I'm going to introduce to you all of the 10. Okay. These are nine very experienced hikers. I'm going to introduce them separately, but like they've chased off bears. They've been shot in the woods. They come from very different backgrounds. It's funny that you mentioned Astonishing Legends because when they were covering this case in their podcast, they nailed it when they said that the group was kind of like the breakfast club. (laughs) They all came from tons of different backgrounds. You had somebody from a very poor family that was in the gulags. You have somebody from a very wealthy, prestigious family. You have just a, a, a variety breakfast club kind of with this group. Now, the thing they had in common was the love of the outdoors and the love of hiking. And this hike they were about to do in late January of 1959 was a very difficult one for like the highest level of hikers. They're doing it for the hiking club, at the UPI hiking club, part of their university. It got them a class three certification, which is like the best of the best certification you can okay, get so for hiking. Were these all college, uh, university students? They were. Okay. The nine friends were, yes. Okay. It would get them their class three certification, like I said, which is the highest. It proves they're the master of their sport. And this hike that they were doing was going to be a true test of will. I think the logistics of a class three certification had to be, uh, it was 186 miles. It had to last a minimum of 16 days. And a lot of that had to, like, I think half of that had to be done in an uninhabited terrain. But because this was for the classification, the certification, the group all journaled their trip. So that's why there's so many journals and there's so many photographs of the group on their trip. They weren't just out there having a good time and just taking pictures and goofing around. I mean, they did that too, but this was a serious thing and that's why they all journaled. And that's why we have so much. It's very well documented. Okay. Until it isn't. <laughs> like I mentioned, the group was close. They had done a lot of expeditions together in the past, several And from their journal entries and photos, we see the closeness. We see the goofiness. They're all in their early 20s. Uh, You know, they get together and they just kind of screw around. But their journals also really share their hard work and what they had to do, what they had to pack, and the seriousness of where they were about to go on this new hike. But they persevered on tough terrain and they loved what they did. And I have to reiterate, and it's probably something I'm going to keep reiterating, but they took it very seriously. Mm-hmm. They didn't allow alcohol on the trip. That was not allowed at all. They just had some for medicinal purposes. Well, you would have to take this seriously. Yeah. I mean, from what you described, my gosh. It, it, yeah. It's no joking matter. No, not at all. Okay. So I'm not Russian. <laughs> You're not? <laughs> I'm not. You were worried about your names. I'm very sorry. I'm going to do the best I can with their names. The victims, we're going to start with Igor Dyatlov, who the Dyatlov Pass was named after. He was the leader of their group. He was 23. He was the most experienced. He was born into a family of engineers and went to the school, went to university to study engineering. But the mountains were his life. Nothing interested him more than the mountains. He was very smart, charismatic. He was just very smart. He had that engineering scientific mind. Like Mm -hmm. he built shortwave radios for fun. (laughs) Just super smart. Like I said, he was a leader. He took his role very seriously. 
he really took care of his friends. That was something he like, he, he honored that. Like he, I don't know how else to, that was very, he was very passionate about that, taking care of his friends and leading them through the mountains. And he loved it. Mm-hmm. He was also very methodical and he had like, he had his strict rules too, even though he did play around with his friends and you can see in pictures and I'll post some. He could be goofy, but he had his things that he wanted. Like at night, he made everybody take off their shoes before they got into the tent and wanted people to like just keep things clean and orderly. And But he also had the scientific brain like he made their tents like it's I'll, I'll go into more detail and all that. But he's a mountain man. Mm-hmm. Loved it. So the next victim is Yuri Doroshenko. He was 21. Now, there are a few Yuris in the group. I think there's four of them. Oh, but I'm going to just call them by their last name. Okay. So we don't confuse them. I'll try. (laughs) Doroshenko was a radio engineer student. He's a bit of a jokester, but he was described by those that knew him as being impulsive and brave. He came from a pretty poor family. He worked really hard in university. Like I said, he was very brave. For example, and I mentioned it before, on one of the group's previous expeditions, a bear came into their camp and started to approach their tent. Doroshenko confronts the bear with a geologist hammer, so just like a little hammer, and just like scared off this bear (laughs) and confronted this bear. Now, it was this incident that is believed to have caught the eye of one of the other hikers on the trip. There are a few like love triangle possibilities, I guess, which have led to people theories but anyway Zena or Zenaida Kolmogorova Kolmogorova yeah that's how you pronounce it the two dated for a while but had broken up by the time of this expedition okay and they were on good terms mm-hmm. Zenaida or Zena uh, was 22 she was a radio engineering student as well she was very smart and she was very pretty now the whole group took turns writing in their travel journal She was very diligent in writing, and she wrote mostly every day. She wrote a ton. Oh, nice. She also wrote her friend Valentina, quote, My dearest Valia, here we are on our way to the mountains. You want to hear a surprise? Yuri Doroshenko is coming with us. I really don't know how I'll feel. I'm treating him like anyone else, but it's really hard because we are together, and yet we're not together, unquote. Hmm. Apparently, in some other journal entries, she wrote how he offered her his mittens out on the hike and how she had this inner conflict with herself on if she should take them or not. (laughs) She decided not to take them. She didn't want him to look into it and didn't want like some romantic link. But the others were like, seriously, get out of your own head. It's cold. Put the damn mittens (laughs) on. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess somebody kind of had a talking with her and they're like, you're hiking. That's where your head should be, period. There was another female in the group, Ludmila Dubanina. She was 20. She was the youngest in the group. She was known for her sensibility. She was described as shy and a cute girl. But she was strong. On a previous trip, she had been shot in the leg by a hunter by mistake. Oh, geez. But in all the photos from that expedition, the boys are like... the. The guys are like carrying her on their shoulders, carrying her out of the woods. Yeah. She's got the biggest smile on her face. And she's she made light of things. She was very lighthearted. And she just she's tough. Yuri Kravonashenko, age 23. He was the real jokester in the group. The class clown, the entertainer who loved to pull pranks. He was a construction and hydraulics student. 
but he was really known to amuse his friends, joke, and make them laugh. (laughs) He played the mandolin, and at night they would huddle around the fire and play and write and sing songs. We have to remember, this is communist Russia. No music is allowed. Oh. So they're making their own music. And I'll go into journal entries and, and everything, like, their evenings and how they spent their hike and everything. But most of the time they are gathered on the fire with that mandolin, writing poems and singing songs. And a fun story I heard about Yuri Kravonchenko. Remember, he's the jokester. Mm-hmm. So they're waiting for the train. And this is in their journals. So it's kind of fun to read about. And Ludmila was the one who was in charge of all the money. And he asked her, can I have some money to go to the cafe? And she said, no, no, no money right now. So he pulled off his cap and started singing for change. (laughs) Well, he was arrested for deception. And the whole group asked the officer to let him go, which is like really brave of them to even confront an officer. Mm -hmm. Soviet Union, don't mess with the police. Like, but they're brave and they spoke up for him and he got let go and everything was fine. But this is just this just shows you too (laughs) how great of friends they were. They stuck together. And I loved that. Okay, so Alexander Kolovatov, he was 24. He studied nuclear physics. I think of my sister with this one because he smoked from a pipe, (laughs) uh, like an antique pipe. She smoked real tobacco. And Katie has a pipe. She loves to smoke her pipe. (laughs) Really? I didn't know that. But his smoking of his pipe drove everyone crazy because everyone had agreed to give up smoking for this trip Trip. okay this was a really serious trip and igor dyatlov was like we need to take this trip seriously we're going to be totally sober for this hike but he had his dang pipe (laughs) now alexander was the most private of the group he kind of kept himself the most he had a private journal he kept for his travels and oddly enough it was one of the very few things not discovered during the investigation of the crime scene Oh, Rustem Slobodin. He was 23. Uh, He went by Rustic. He was from a very wealthy family. He actually had his degree already in mechanical engineering. Although he's from a rich family, he was very unpretentious. He was loved by the group. There are photos of him standing in like a jacket that's torn and shredded and kind of looks burnt, but he's very proud of it. (laughs) No idea why the jacket was shredded and burnt, but he was wearing it in this picture very proudly. Again, the photos just show this juvialness of just just these young kids just having a good time in nature. Mm-hmm. Rustic was also said to be the most athletic. He was also known as the man of few words, but he played and he had a mandolin that he played and loved. And he brought it on a lot of the group's expeditions as well. So they had dueling mandolins. Uh, on this expedition, only one of them brought okay. the mandolin, but I think it was either one or the other would bring their mandolin. Now we have Yuri Yudin. He was 21. Yudin was the one that all the girls liked the most. And when I say that, I don't mean romantically. Just mean that they really liked and trusted him. He was the one that, he's just that buddy. He cared for them. He made sure that they were okay. He was never sarcastic with them. He's just a nice guy. Mm -hmm. Someone that they could depend on. Now, unfortunately, he suffered from some health and back issues. And he is the one that will turn back. Okay. He started the trip off fine. The beginning of the trip was a lot of train and truck rides with minimal like actual hiking between settlements. But as the hiking really started, he really started to struggle. 
He will come into play a bit later. He aids investigators later on with like naming equipment, who that belonged to, whose jacket was that. I see. Okay. Um, he helped the, the investigators with that kind of thing. Um, so I will mention him again. So I just wanted to introduce him. He was devastated by what happened to his friends. And actually, when he died in 2013, he requested to be buried with them. Oh, wow. He probably had a lot of survivor's guilt. I can only, only imagine. Okay, this next name is very difficult. Uh, Nikolai Thibault Brignoles. He went by Thibault. He was 23. Great grandson of a French immigrant. Graduated industrial civil construction. He was known to be a very serious guy. He laughed along with the group. I mean, he they all fit in together, but he was very serious. I read up on his history, and I was very fascinated with his history. His father had actually been sent to the gulags under Stalin. Thibaut came from a mining engineering family. His father worked in the mines and somehow ended up in the gulags, which, for those that don't know, are forced labor camps led by the Soviets. Russian history is just, mm, yeah. it's just, it's crazy. Okay, anyway. His father was in the camps for a long time. He was issued a permit to meet up with his wife and daughters, and thus Nikolai was conceived. Okay. Now, you'd think with having this kind of a family history, it could be tough for Nikolai, but he worked hard through school and had these friends from the hiking club. Again, it's like the breakfast club. They all come from different walks of life, but they all just found that consistency together. Now, like I said, the beginning of the trip was trains and trucks and stuff mm -hmm. to go up the mountain. They met a man and he introduced himself to them as Sasha. Sasha was supposed to be doing the same hike as this group of students was doing with some other friends, but something happened. So he asked this group of students if he could join them. At first, they're a little hesitant, yeah. but after one evening with the group, he fit right in he was jovial like they were he was goofy he took the hike seriously um, and he was accepted in according to all the journals and everything and Nikolai really befriended Sasha and the two became quite inseparable now who is Sasha or Simeon or Alexander he's 38 and he like I said he fit right in with the group with the silly songs and he's very lighthearted. He worked as an instructor of tourism, and he needed to go on this hike to kind of get a promotion for work. For his job. Okay. So why, why did you call him like three different names? So he introduced himself as Sasha, mm -hmm. uh, but he also went by Simeon, and his legal name is Simeon Alexander, and he also went by Alexander. Okay. Uh, he, he's quite the mystery, honestly. I wish I should have did so much digging into this case. I wish I would have dug in more with him. He was a World War II vet. He was a combat engineer. And from what I understand, the group he was in the war with had like a 20 to 30% survival rate. Oh. Yeah. He's a tough guy. He'd seen a lot. He was covered in tattoos. One of them just had like a bunch of random letters that did not mean anything. Mm. So he was, he had his own little story, I think. And because of his background, he's part of a lot of those theories, the 75 theories course. that I mentioned before. Yeah. But he went by Sasha with the group. But his legal name is Semyon Alexander Zolotorov. <laughs> okay. Now that you've somewhat been introduced to the nine victims and the 10 characters, let's move into the case. Holy cow. I said I want to do this case for the longest time. And I had like a good two weeks before we were going to record. So I was like, this is the perfect opportunity for me to dig into it. 
two weeks was not enough (laughs) even (laughs) I just kept reading and reading and I think you've mentioned it before with some of your past cases Mm -hmm. you just keep reading and reading and watching and watching and listening and listening there's more and there's more and there's more and you're like I need to actually sit down and write (laughs) something out stop (laughs) exactly so I wrote obviously something out but that's why I asked for you to ask any questions because I'm not like a know-it-all in the Diat Love past incident by any means but (laughs) you little (laughs) know-it-all But it might open some more theories or questions or what have you. Okay. I read through the journal entries. Obviously, they've been translated. I mentioned the Dyatlov Pass, D-Y-A-T-L-O-V-P-A-S-S dot com. Go there while you're listening. Look at pictures. They have pictures from the, uh, I call them kids, the young adults on their hike. They have pictures from, I think there were four or five cameras that the they had taken with them i they also have photos from the rescuers and and all this kind of stuff right. and the investigation i mean it's all there so if you want to visualize anything we're talking about go there i honestly that's what i suggest the most but Zena is the one who journals on the first day january 23rd they're all preparing and heading out on the train that day quote the room is an artistic mess unquote She goes on to write about how they sang and made up songs on the train. And then she writes, I wonder what awaits us on this trip. What will we encounter? That's creepy. The following day, they arrive at Surav. And this is where Yuri Krivo, as Yodin calls him in the journals, he's right. Yodin is writing this day. But this is when he gets arrested for singing. (laughs) Okay. And there's no singing allowed there. It's forbidden. And it's assumed to be an activity that would disturb the peace. The group fought for him. They get him back. And they actually go and take shelter and prepare for their trek in a nearby school by the railway. Here, Yudin writes about the students and how amazed and intrigued they were with the hikers' stories. They showed them and taught them about their equipment. And the kids just like... That's awesome. Loved them. They had tons of questions. They were very curious. The children saw them off at the train station, oh. promising they would be good and keep up on their studies. And then Yudin actually writes, too, that they loved Zena and they were begging her not to go. Please stay. Oh. Please stay with us. Oh. After an evening on the train, the group took a bus on January 25th into the deep foresty area, is what they called it, where they were greeted warmly. They had a nice dinner and then bunkered down in a small hut together. All but two of the hikers went to go see a movie that night in the small town, Symphony in Gold, and they came back in high spirits. They sang songs and prepared their equipment for the next day. That next day, some of the guys negotiated with some locals to take them up to Settlement 41 by truck. It was about a three-hour trip in the back of the truck. Ooh. Quote, we froze pretty good at the back, unquote. And that was from Krovenchenko, the jokester. And you, it's so funny because you can see their personalities when they take turns, when you read their mm-hmm. different journal entries. And you could just tell he was a jokester. And then there was somebody, I'm pretty sure. Oh, shoot. I wish I, wish I remember who it was. There was somebody who just like would journal like, it's cold, done. <laughs> that, was like, that was their journal entry. And then it's like, I'm trying to journal. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was it. It was very funny. So they arrive at the settlement where, again, they are greeted warmly by the local workers. Krivanashenko mentions a man that goes by the name The Beard. They all had a nice time. Rustic played his mandolin. 
They relaxed and prepared for their next venture for the following day. Again, the guys make a deal with some locals to get a horse-drawn sled, and this is January 27th. But the sled, so the sled's going to pull all of their equipment while they start their hike. Okay. And they make comment in the journal how the horse is actually slowing them down, and it was just like, ugh, it was miserable because the horse was going so slow. They're skiing towards the second northern settlement, which is an abandoned geological site with like 20 houses or so. Quote, but only one suitable for living, unquote. Mm-hmm. The journal jokes about that. The horse, um, like I said, slows them down and they go on ahead, getting to the settlement in the evening time. The livable house was still in rough shape. They, Some of them got cut up with nails on their hands. Oh, like it was no. not the best. But they made do. It was shelter. They stayed up till three in the morning, just chatting and singing and joking. Yuri Yodin had started to fall under the weather at this point. Under the weather. <laughs> Here we go. Did you see that post I made on I social did. media? Thank you. Yes. There's the reason for it. So <laughs> they weren't on a boat. But no, yeah. they weren't. But he's so some resources said he had back issues. He had some ailments. He just was really suffering. So he plans to head in the morning. He's like, I'm going to head back while you guys head to your next settlement. He had started to feel bad previously. But he really wanted to go to the northern settlement with the group because, or the second northern settlement, because it was a, he was a geologist and that was an old geological site. Oh, okay. So he was really okay. curious at the minerals that were there and everything else. So in the morning of January 28th, he heads back home and the group starts their trek. They've been really lucky with weather. It's not snowing and the weather isn't terribly cold. It's only about 17 degrees with very little wind. They hike all day in the mountains of Siberia. And that evening, they have their first evening in the tent. Dyatlov had manufactured this tent. It was a tarp-like tent, and it's suspended up by ropes. It had a collapsible, like, chimney, and they had a stove up at the top. They could turn the stove on inside the tent to keep them warm. Oh, my gosh. There were some complaints in the journals about it being actually too warm. Nobody actually wanted to sleep by... (laughs) by the stove because it'd be too warm but that's great like that oh my gosh think of that it's a tent and it's probably dropping below zero mm-hmm. and you're too warm <laughs> isn't that funny they stay up late into the night again singing with the mandolin and chatting the night away about love <laughs> january 29th they continue their hike now they are following a trail made by reindeer and made by the mansi people Monsi. Mansi. I think it's Monsi. The Monsi are the local indigenous people that live in the mountains there. They have villages among mountains. Uh, They're a semi-nomadic group. So depending on how the wind is blowing, they'll move their huts, their makeshift huts. They're hunters and fishermen, and they raise reindeer. Interesting. Okay. The group writes in their journal about the Monsi. Quote, in the middle of the road, the Monsi shed. Yes, Monsi, Monsi, Monsi. This word comes up more and more often in our conversations. Monsi are people of the North, very interesting and unique people that inhabit the North Polar Urals, unquote. The journal entry goes on to say that among the trees of their hike, they noticed Monsi symbols and writings. They don't know what it means, mm-hmm. but they just make mention of it. The group hikes for a few days, again, pretty lucky with the weather. It's around 17 to 20 degrees Fahrenheit, little wind, little snow, but they're still in like a foresty like area 
too. Okay. They're not like an open. So that could yet. cut the wind. Right. <laughs> On January 30th, the weather is starting to pick up with stronger wind and the snow starts to fall. And the wind starts to get really bad that it's actually getting the snow off the trees. So then it's just oh, like sure. just yeah. tons of snow. The group also on this day actually come across and speak with some Monsi people. The tribe shares with the group about some animal and wildlife sightings nearby, resting stops, and the group is thrilled to have spoken to them. The trails they were following up to this point also come to an end. Oh, no. And their trail starts to get treacherous. So they're following like a trail and I use that and but if somebody had walked ahead of them so they were just kind of following that but now they're going to have to start walking on the snow creating their own trail. The snow is four feet deep. Oh, The trees are getting smaller, fewer and the wind is fierce. They make camp a little earlier than normal on this day breaking off fir branches and laying them under the tent to form a barrier between their camp and the snow. The following day January 31st is another really hard day. Quote, walking is especially hard today. We can't see the trail, have to grope our way through at times. Can't do more than 1.52 kilometers, which is a mile per hour. Oh my gosh. Unquote. The trees have officially cleared out and the wind is hitting them, quote, piercing with speed like the draft from airplanes at takeoff, unquote. I swear I'm getting cold right now. Just thinking about this. Oh, the group sets up their tent for shelter, so happy to find relief from the cold. And they set up a labaz, a labaz, L-A-B-A-Z. It's essentially a base camp. So the next day they're going to head out and continue their hike. But here at this labaz, this base camp, they're going to leave a lot of their equipment. Okay. Because it's just getting, the wind is too rough. They're going to take only what they need from here on out. But they make camp here. They set the labaz up. Uh, and then the next day, February 1st, the group only barely gets three miles. Jeez. Setting up their tent on a slope on Kalat Sakal, translated by the Monsi meaning dead mountain. Oh. Around five o'clock is when they set up their tent. No, it was not named after this. That is the name of the mountain. Of the mountain. Mm -hmm. They gather in their tent to eat dinner between 6 and 7 p.m., Photos taken on this day show jokesters, happy hikers, even though they only made it three miles that entire day, the photos are still evidence that they had a good time. And this is the last evidence we have of the nine hikers. Before the hike, it was agreed that as soon as the hikers made it to their destination of Vizhay, they would send word to their sports club. This telegram was expected no later than February 12th. Now, when this date passed... And Yudin, Yuri Yudin, their friend who turned back, mm -hmm. hadn't gotten their postcard. He wasn't really worried because sometimes that's just what happens. The weather's bad. You get delayed a couple days. Like, he wasn't necessarily worried. This is a hard expedition, too. Right. But come February 20th, some family members of the hikers start to get concerned, and a rescue operation was sent out. The search team consisted of volunteer students from the sports club at the university where the nine hikers had attended. Mm -hmm. So their peers and colleagues and teachers. Later, the army, police forces, and helicopters would join in the search. On February 26th, the searchers discovered the hikers' tent. It had been abandoned. The students were not in the tent. Mm -hmm. The student who found the tent, so one of the hikers' peers found the tent, reported, quote, the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty. 
and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. It was empty, meaning there was no people in it. I gotcha. Yeah. But the blankets were still in there. All of their food, all of their equipment, their boots, everything is still left inside. Did you hear that? Yeah. Their shoes. Their shoes. Had been left inside. And to make things more odd, there were slash marks on the tent made by a knife. Oh. Coming from the inside of the tent. Oh, like they were trying to get out. So the nine hikers slashed their way out of the tent. They literally slashed their way out or they there were slash marks and they used the door still. No, they cut the tent open to get out. They slashed their way out of the tent. All but I believe two of them didn't have shoes on. Only two of them had their boots on. The others did not have boots on. And it's believed the two males, two males had their boots on because they had used the restroom. Maybe they had left the tent to go use the restroom or okay. something like that. Okay. So they had their shoes still on. Barefoot and socked footprints were seen leaving the tent. Ooh. There were nine sets of footprints. So it must not have snowed during the interim that much because it didn't cover. Their footprints are still seen. Mm-hmm. There's snow on the tent and the tent is squashed in. I'm going to show you a picture. The tent's like totally collapsed. Yes and no. You still see its poles yeah, it's holding and, it up. And the front or whatever side so of whatever it is still force didn't necessarily i mean it still looks like a tent mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. could they tell whether the footprints were running great question there are nine sets of footprints now you would expect if they left without proper footwear and clothing in a blizzard like scenario here i mean it is freezing i've explained to you the wind i've explained to you the snow they have no tree coverage anymore right. and they slash their way out of their shelter Something had to be wrong, right? But these footprints don't show distress. They're not running. There are footprints all close together. Sometimes someone would carefully even place their foot into an already made footprint in front of them. What? If they're slashing their way out of the tent, you'd think they were, would run. You'd think that they're like running from something. Mm-hmm. The slashing of the tent showed fierceness in getting out of the tent. But the footprints showed a more slow-moving action. What would cause this? What would cause nine experienced hikers to do this in these kind of weather circumstances? Like we said, the tent was squashed in by snow. But it's weird to me because like photos taken by the group in their journal entries mm -hmm. show their campsite when they set up camp. And they have ski poles set out outside the tent propped in the snow photos then taken at the investigation when they discover the tent mm -hmm. show those ski poles in the exact same place so this isn't some drastic event like wh what yes there's snow but okay here here's here's something else and this is the one thing that gets me every time on top of the snow that's on top of the tent mm -hmm is a flashlight. What? Igor Dyatlov's flashlight. The peer that found the tent grabbed the flashlight and turned it on. It was a working flashlight. Okay, this makes no sense. On top of the snow, on top of the squashed tent. This makes no sense. Plus their footprints were visible. The footprints led down the slope. 
Now, this is about a 20 degree grade to the slope. It's not this horrendously steep, right. steep mountain slope. But the footprints lead down to the small grove of trees, not quite a mile away. I think it's like 0.9 miles. So it's not quite a mile. There, under an old, large cedar tree, they discovered the first two bodies, found in a very mysterious way. And I will share the rest with you next week. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. I told you this is long and there's so much information. It's crazy. I'm so anxious to share with you, but I'm going to break this up to a two-parter. <laughs> I am. And yes, it's coming out next week. You're not going to have to wait two weeks. Oh, listeners, I feel your pain right now. (laughs) (laughs) It'll come out next Monday. Oh, my gosh. This is so befuddling. I mean, it's like your mind is like, how can that be? Oh, just wait. How can how can this how can a flashlight be a working flashlight? A working flashlight of the snow. Mm -hmm. How can there? They see the footprints still. If there is, I mean, I'm assuming there has been snow. There's snow on top of the tent. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't picture it probably as like normal footprints that you would see like in your backyard when you walk through your backyard or something like that. We're talking like four feet of snow that they're walking through. So these are like holes in the ground that they're making as they walk. But still those would fill in if, if there was snow. Somewhat, yeah, yeah. Because the last report of them and their dinner was February 1st. So it's sometime the evening of February 1st, early morning of February 2nd. Something Something happened. happened. Oh, just wait. Just wait. <laughs> like I said, diotlovepass.com. Go check it out. Don't ruin it for yourselves. <laughs> if you want me to share the story, I'll share the story wait next till next week. Wait week and then go check it out. <laughs> But pictures, check out the pictures. Oh, gosh. And the journal entries. There's, They each had their own journals, and then they had their traveling journal. And it's so fun to go through those and read them. But then stop. <laughs> well, you you have to stop. They come to an end. <laughs> February 1st, there's no more. It's fun to read. And, that, and that's why I included some of, like, the romantical things and, like, how she wrote her friend and the crushes. But yet, they took it very seriously. Yeah, but that humanizes them too. Yeah, I, I, just... I needed to do that. I needed to do that because a lot of the time when I hear this story is just nine hikers, nine students. And then a lot of people don't understand why there are so many journals and why there are so many pictures. I mean, they were working hard to become masters of their sport. It's very impressive to me. And none of them had done this pass before. Never. Mm-mm. They had done level two certifications mm-hmm. they've all gotten multiple level two certifications i think uh ludmila had done like three or four of them of certification twos but this is all of their first certification three okay i'm assuming that the students that help investigators discover the the tent and everything they must have been level two or level three themselves i'm sure mm-hmm. because to get to that point yeah that they were at. And I'm sure because they were going on a search, I'm sure they had trucks and stuff take them up as far as they could. So they had to go to a settlement and then they had to get their miles in of hiking mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. I'm sure they could have gotten sleds or any, you know, certain things to help the search crews go up there mm-hmm. a little further. Okay. Well, sleep on that. <laughs> 
We have filled your heads with teleportation. Oh, that's a theory here too. Don't don't get me wrong. I knew it would be. <laughs> I totally knew it would be. <laughs> I, I am not even kidding. That is no. one of the seventy-five theories. <laughs> I, I would have said I would have said that. Yeah, you probably actually have all of my theories in there. Delusional, mm-hmm. murder. Mm-hmm. There you go. Those are the three <laughs> theories on my hand <laughs> and teleportation. So, all right. Well, resources for both of our stories are going to be on our website, killerhangoverpodcast.com. Part two is coming out next Monday. Don't worry. We'll cover it all. <laughs> Don't worry. All the questions. Find us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, uh, YouTube. Don't forget, you can always join us on Patreon. And uh, yeah, think of this as like my little Valentine's gift to you. Oh, aren't you sweet? Uh, I know. I know. Hey, Beth. Hey, Mom. Guess what came up on my Facebook? What? I had a little picture of you and I, and it said, six more days until we start. our podcast oh that's right we started february 1st february 1st oh my gosh it'll be three it well it's three years when this episode comes out it'll be three years yep Ooh, weird it's gone it's just gone by so fast it really has doesn't feel like three years well fun stuff fun stuff all right well cheers to that mama cheers (laughs) love you kid